I'll be reading from Psalm 144. The whole chapter of Psalm 144. Blessed be the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. He is my steadfast love and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield, and he in whom I take refuge, who subdues peoples under me. O Lord, what is man that you regard him, or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath, his days are like a passing shadow. Bow your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains so that they smoke. Flash forth the lightning and scatter them. Send out your arrows and rout them. Stretch your hand from on high. Rescue me and deliver me from the many waters, from the hand of foreigners whose mouth speaks lies, and whose right hand is at the right hand of falsehood. I will sing a new song to you, O God. Upon a ten-stringed harp I will play to you, who gives victory to kings, who rescues David his servant from the cruel sword. Rescue me and deliver me from the hand of foreigners, whose mouth speaks lies, and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. May our sons in their youth be like plants full grown, our daughters like corner pillars cut from the, for the structure of a palace. May our granaries be full, providing all kinds of produce. May our sheep bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our fields. May our cattle be heavy with young, suffering no mishap or failure in bearing. May there be no cry of distress in our streets. Blessed are the people to whom such blessings fall. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. Thank you for reading that, that psalm. It captures so much of the kind of range of human experience. Entirely too many papers here with me this morning. <clears throat> I'd like you to turn your Bibles now to the book of Genesis, chapter 29. We have a long passage, and since the, the content of the passage uh, can tend toward the rather unpleasant, maybe we can have a short sermon. Uh, we'll see. I would say I had a Facebook messenger chat with a pastor friend of mine last night, and he said, hey, Steve, are you preaching on tomorrow? And I said, I am. He said, now, I'm following your sermons. And he said, are you in the passage I think you're ready for? And I said, yes, uh, I'll be praying for you, brother. He said, uh, there's a few more passages like that uh, coming up here in the book of Genesis. And again, I'm just, I'm just reminded that so many of the stories in Genesis are not stories we would like to write about our own family's histories. Uh, we'd have a hard time probably telling some of these really difficult tales. And our natural tendency is to try to, try to tell the good stories and kind of leave the others to people's imagination. And somehow in God's book, God's record, he just tells all the stories. And sometimes it seems that he takes the most uh, distorted ones and lifts them out and captures our attention with these twisted tales of, in this case, human scheming again. But I think what it does, and, and the more I, I keep working through Genesis, I think I'm discovering that the theme of the book of Genesis is really the gracious providence of God, his sovereign care over his world, over his people, and that when God sets out on a mission, and his mission here is to call out a people, 
through whom he will give the law, through whom he will bring his son Jesus, nothing will deter God from accomplishing that purpose. And you read all these stories in Genesis, and you think any one of these could have single-handedly, completely thwarted God's purpose for calling out a people. None of them does. God, in his grace, and as the king of the universe, still gets it done. He still gets it done. That should bring tremendous hope to us in our day. While we look around, and it's easy for us to throw in the towel and despair and say, hey, it's a lost cause. No, it's not. God is still on the throne, and he will remember his own. Although trials oppress us and burdens distress us, he never will leave us alone. God is still on the throne. You see, it's not ultimately about us, it's about him. And as the eternally good, all-powerful one who created the world, fully understands all the chaos and turmoil that's here, he continues to work to bring about his purposes. And that's the crowning message of this rather difficult story here today. This past week, I spent a fair bit of time sitting on the banks of the Rappahannock River. And I commend that activity to you, by the way. Uh, most of it wasn't with a fishing pole in hand, though one did arrive on a few, few occasions. But it's really my first time on the Rappahannock. And it was quite a large river. And we were still 20 miles approximately from where the Rappahannock spilled into the Chesapeake Bay. And yet where I sat in my chair overlooking the Rappahannock, it was two miles across to the other side. So we're talking about a big river, okay, huge river. But even the Rappahannock starts as a tiny little stream flowing out of a spring in a mountain up near Front Royal. It starts there. This little fountain of water starts as a little stream and eventually, as it winds its way down, it grows and grows and grows till it's a mighty river, two miles across, uh, I think dumping 1,797 cubic feet of water per second into the Chesapeake Bay. How they measured that, I'm not sure, but that's the number. It was Wikipedia. And you know, the story of God's promise is kind of similar to that. God promises to Abraham, I'm going to make you, of you a great nation. Like the sand of the seashore, like the stars of the heavens. It's going to be that great nation, Abraham. And you think, okay, God, you better get started. Maybe 24 sons or something. One. One. One promised son. Hey, come on, God. You're going to deliver on your promise, or aren't you? Well, that son has how many sons? He's got two sons, but one promised. One's excluded. One promised son. The little creek just keeps running. Where's the mighty river? Well, the mighty river begins to grow a bit larger here. Jacob, the third of the patriarchs, now has 12 sons. 
Okay, the tributaries are starting to flow in. But that is much the way God's promises unfold. Just because we don't see the immediate results of what God promises to Abraham doesn't mean he won't keep his promise. Just because we don't see the immediate results of God's promises to us doesn't mean he won't keep his promise. God is a covenant-keeping God. He promises to us, and he keeps those promises. Even when all hell breaks loose inside his covenant people sometimes. The story of God's covenant seems like a small, tiny creek at this point, but the river begins to broaden. It's a lengthy passage. I want you to see it in basically two sections. God's promise to Jacob, as well as to his forefathers, was kind of in two two components. One of them is a great people, and one of them is great resources. It's hard to become a great people if you don't have any resources. Okay, just ask a family uh, trying to raise a bunch of kids with no money. That's tough. Okay, really tough. A little easier to get it done if you have a few more resources. And God says, I'm not only going to give you uh, many people, I'm going to give you all the resources that you need to make this happen. You'll be my people. I'm going to bless you. And so we see the the prospering of God, God's increase coming in those two categories here in this passage today. First of all, the family, the people, the descendants. He has 12 by the end of our section here today. Uh, Jacob, up to this point, has been a poor pauper. He's been a servant of his father-in-law. He left his homeland. His father was a wealthy man. He left home with nothing. The shirt on his back, you might say. Now he's been married for many years, and he's still got what? The shirt on his back. For all practical purposes, he's a slave of his father-in-law, who's a greedy, scheming sort of guy. Jacob's got nothing. And he could begin to ask, well, God, you said you would prosper my journey. I'm still stuck here. Don't even have the resources to start going home. Uh, How's all this going to work out? And then we see human scheming coming into both of these areas. Leah and Rachel, Jacob's two wives, the games they play. Uh, Gentlemen, every one of you here ought to be grateful. Okay? You ought to feel sorry for Jacob. Jacob and his father-in-law. Tragic games going on between the two of them. And yet, on both fronts, in both areas, God blesses and God increases in spite of man's schemes. Genesis 29, verse 31, and we'll read through the end of chapter 30, through the end of chapter 30, verse 43. It's a long haul. Here goes. You almost need filters on your ears. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me a son, this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me. 
because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, Am I in the place of God, who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here is my servant Billa. Go into her, so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me, and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, Good fortune has come, so she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy, so she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come into me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night, and God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a, with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. As soon as Rachel had borne Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me away that I may go to my, home, my own home and country, Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you that I may go, for you know the service that I have given you. But Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages, and I will give it. Jacob said to him, You, you, know, you yourself know how I served you and how your livestock has fared with me. For you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now when shall I provide for my own household also? He said, What shall I give you? Jacob said, You shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. 
everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. Laban said, Good, let it be as you have said. But that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it and every lamb that was black, and put them in the charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob. And Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is, the watering places, where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks. And so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there, so the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. I just want to say, wow. Wow. Let's look at the first section here. Jacob's increase in family came with a bitter struggle. The struggle that started at the first marriage when Leah became Jacob's first wife instead of Rachel and now includes their two servant girls. The struggle of two sisters. One seeking the love of husband and one the affirmation of society, the validation of womanhood through childbearing. One having the affirmation of womanhood and the approval of society because she's bearing children the other one having love of husband. Both of them yearning for what they do not have. Neither of them seeming to embrace and value what they do have. Each woman wants what the other has. Neither treasures what she's been given. So much of our struggle lies in those kinds of situations. And then you enter the human scheming and even superstition in the quest to get what God has promised. He's called us to a faith-filled confidence in Him. But so often, we try to find alternative ways of trying to accrue for ourselves God's blessing through human means and superstitions. And this quest has three particular low spots. The first one is when Rachel, the envious of her sister, the one who envies her sister, says to Jacob, give me children or I die. Ah, poor Jacob. What's he going to say? Hey, don't talk to me. Jacob's angry. Rightfully angry. And he says, am I in the place of God? 
But you can hear the frustration in Rachel's voice, the agony of her soul, the depth of desire, all-consuming desire. Then we have the seeming inability to bear children in Rachel leads to a repeat of the Sarah plan. Hey, whether she knew the family history or not, it's like, hey, I have this maid, and maybe she can be a surrogate for me. Maybe she can have a, ch- she can have a child, and I can adopt it, and it can be my child. Another low spot in the struggle and in the plan. And Rachel starts this in her desperation, and of course, Leah follows by giving Jacob her handmaid, her servant as well. Not entirely uncommon in the culture of that day, and there was an adoption process that followed, but all it did was escalate the rivalry between the sisters. Rachel, after the birth of her first surrogate son, says, with mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister, and I have prevailed. I finally got the upper hand. I have a husband who loves me, and I have a son. but still didn't resolve the dilemma, still didn't solve the problem or end the scheming. And then the third low low point is this mandrake deal. Leah's son, probably no more than four or five years old, out running around the fields, finds this pretty little flower that has a root on it. He digs it up, brings it home for his mama mandrakes. And mandrakes were viewed as a fruit to enhance fertility. So little boy brings it home to mama. Sister, who has not yet conceived a child of her own, says, mandrakes? Embracing the superstition that this will enhance her fertility, give me those mandrakes. Sister says, wait a minute, you've already taken my husband, and now you want my son's mandrakes too? You can almost, I mean, you can almost see the scene escalating. Okay, this is not pretty. Rachel says, okay, you can have my husband. Give me the mandrakes. It's interesting that who does God honor in this situation? Leah. She conceives, bears another son. But the longing of her heart is not just son, it's love of husband. And she says, now my husband will honor me. But guess what? He still doesn't. He still doesn't. It's just a tragic tragic rivalry and a household fraught with difficulty and pain. And yet, there are now 12 children in the household. 11 sons, one daughter. Then there's the question of wealth and the resources. God has promised to Jacob and his ancestors resources not to merely survive but to prosper, to flourish and to become a strong people of influence. 
And he basically says, I'm ready to stop being a slave, and I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to find my own way in my own land. I want to return home, back where God has promised I would go. Please send me away. And he uses basically the same language that Abraham's servant uh, spoke to Laban and his father in asking to take Rebekah back to be Isaac's wife. Send me away that I may go back to my home and to my country. Let me leave, he said, with my wives and children for whom I have served you. He wants to be released from his status as a servant, as a slave, as one completely dependent on Laban. But Laban comes back to the subject of wages and says, just tell me what you need and I'll pay you. He says, I don't want money. How about this deal? Laban says, I figured out through divination, through magic, that the reason I'm successful is because of you, Jacob. So got to keep you in my back pocket so that I continue being successful. Jacob says, you're right. You're exactly right. But it's time that the success starts spilling over to me. You had little when I got here. Now you're a wealthy man. But I still need to provide for my household. Let's do this. I will take the irregulars. Okay, I'll take the spotted and the speckled. The sheep typically were white. The goats, brown. And he said, I'll take all the irregularly colored ones. And then you have the regularly colored ones. We can easily tell which property belongs to whom. And if there's a crossover, theft. Simple, clean deal. We'll get it done. Laban says, good idea. <coughs> Before Jacob gets a chance to separate out his speckled and black ones, guess what Laban does? Pulls them all aside himself, puts them under the management of his sons and sends them three days' journey away. Okay, so there are no speckled or black males mating with any of his solid-colored herd, flocks. Fix that one. All the speckled, three days' journey away. Laban is left to oversee the solid color, the regularly colored flock. He's done in. He's done in again. But no, 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 this is Jacob. Okay, Jacob has a plan. And we go here to the plan that nobody really knows okay, what it's about. And it's interesting to read various people's opinions. Basically, three tricks that Jacob pulls. The first one is he takes branches, peels some of the bark off, so he has these striped sticks, and he places them in the watering troughs where the mating animals drink water, and they see them when they're mating, and somehow that produces speckled and striped animals. Second, he positions the mating females to be looking at only black and striped animals or facing toward Laban's black and striped speckled animals. It's his second trick. And then third, he uses trick one, putting those things in when the strong of Laban's flock are there. When the weak are there, he doesn't put the sticks in the water. Okay, this is herd management, and my closest call is it's herd management, herd management by superstition. Okay. 
But guess what? God prospers Laban's work. I mean, Jacob's work. God prospers, even against the schemes of his father-in-law. God prospers, and Laban's strong of the flock bear speckled and spotted. And Laban's herd, Jacob's herd grows and grows, and Laban's herd is weak and frail. I'd like for you to note these things particularly about both of these stories. The first one is God's care. God's care of Jacob in the midst of a greatly disadvantaged situation. God's promise to be with him, to not leave him, to see him safely back home is being carefully worked out. It's not happening because of the superstition and magic, but rather because of God's blessing, God's promise. And you know, we, we credit all kinds of crazy things for our success, for our well-being. We vest our hopes in all kinds of strange superstitions at times. Let's never forget, it's the grace of God that prospers and blesses. We see God's grace. Two competitive sisters as wives, an exploitive father-in-law. The 12 tribes begin in oppression, social pain, and rivalry. But God's grace is greater than these problems, is greater than these sins, and his purposes are still worked out in spite of these difficulties. And then there's the, the ray of hope that just sweeps through into people's emptiness and loneliness, the pain of barrenness, lives shuttered by hostility, sorrow, and bickering. Many people know the anguish of Leah or the hostility of Rachel that seems to be keeping them from a rich and full life that they long for and ardently desire, whatever the cause of that might be. And yet, the hope of the gospel shines into that darkness. God champions the cause of the oppressed. God champions the cause of the barren, of the unloved and the needy. The divine grace and mercy of God establishes God's kingdom, a kingdom of promise and a kingdom of hope. And then God gives an increase. God gives an increase in spite of barrenness. God gives an increase in spite of greed and cheating. They are not ultimate obstacles to God fulfilling his promise. God is not frustrated by these things. He's not surprised by these things. He's able to work in spite of those things because he is the sovereign king. Justice will eventually be served. The hungry will be fed. The barren will be made fruitful. And the needy will be made, in Old Testament language, fat. It's a bad word in our culture, but sign of blessing. This is the God of promise, the God who keeps his promises. How does he do this? Not by overlooking or ignoring evil, injustice, and sin, but rather through his incarnation. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Surely he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Like a lamb he was led to the slaughter. Like a sheep before its shears is silent. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And we, through his stripes are healed. God does not ignore the evil. He embraces it and offers hope. 
to all those who trust him. The end result, God took away the reproach of Rachel. Jacob has 11 sons and one daughter. Jacob has managed his father-in-law's flocks. The stronger animals are his. He's increased in wealth and in family. Jacob, the schemer, has been the victim of the scheming of others, and yet God's plan and purposes are not thwarted. Jacob, the schemer, becomes, by the grace of God, another segment of the river, and what starts as a trickle and a tiny creek becomes a mighty river in spite of the turbulence of the riffles and the rapids. God fulfills his promise. And he still fulfills his promises to us. And I think the most pointed one today in my mind is, will the church prevail? Will he find faith on the earth? The answer is yes. Jesus will keep and will build his church. And nothing that happens in our culture, in our world, can ultimately overcome the work of the kingdom of Christ. He will prevail. Let's stand together for prayer. Father, in our own worlds, our own lives, where we face barrenness, isolation, anxiety, fear, even those areas where we may be somewhat victimized by the sins of others against us. Teach us, Lord, to trust you, to rest in you. Increase our faith. And Lord, in the turmoil of our nation at this time, help us to lift our eyes off of the temporal passing authorities of this time to the eternal enduring king of the universe, your son Jesus, and his assurance to us that he will ultimately triumph over evil and bring us safely home to that new heavens and new earth where things are put to rights, where we can sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb and share in that glorious celebration with our bridegroom, your son, the Lord Jesus. Increase our faith and our capacity to love you and to love our neighbor well. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Go in the blessing and peace of Christ.